welcome to episode 72 of the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. I'm going to keep the intro short and sweet this time. I think I set up the situation in the show itself. Thanks for listening, and if you listen to the end, there'll be a brief announcement about the show. So here's the setup. We don't normally do previously on on this program, <laughs> but previously on... We had Dave and Andy on on episode 68, and we went, spent a long time talking about how Dave Thomas had stopped testing for a while to determine what would happen, and what actually happened was, as far as he could tell, nothing. It didn't really change the code that he was writing at all, he felt. And what he took from that was that having uh, spent 30 years thinking about testing, he had internalized the design requirements that come from TDD. In the episode mm-hmm. after that, which is episode 69, for those of you playing along at home, I had a long conversation with Sandy Metz. We talked about testing to some extent. We talked about Dave's comments. We talked about teaching testing. And we both kind of agreed and sort of talked around the idea that those of us who teach testing were not necessarily doing a great job of explaining why testing was a good thing or why people should test. And that as a partial result, Rails developers and a lot of Ruby and Rails code is sort of poorly tested or and possibly poorly designed. I think Sandy would argue that there's a higher order case of teaching design, which is a problem. So with a secondary prompt that I am actually, as we record this, teaching a testing and design workshop for a half day for a bunch of relatively junior developers next week. And I'm wondering, what do you think I should tell them? Because in response to that, I, I like sent up, literally basically sent up the bat signal and got three multiple time guests on this program who are now all going to introduce themselves. And, and Betsy, you can start. I'm Betsy. Um, I am the co-founder of Cohere, a software education and management training agency. You can check us out at wecohere.com. I also currently work for the LTSA, um, which stands for Long-Term Stock Exchange, and it's exactly what it says on the tin. And Avdi? Hi, I am Avdi Grimm, and I run Ruby Tapas, which is a, a Ruby education screencast service, um, and do various other things. And Penelope. Hi. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Penelope Fippen. Uh, I'm a lead maintainer of the RSpec testing framework, and I'm also currently working on a Ruby auto formatter called Ruby Format. Okay, now... What do I tell these poor people who have agreed to come listen to me for a couple of hours talk about testing and, and design and stuff? So one of the things that I immediately thought of when you were talking about Dave and Andy's ideas is something Katrina Owen said when she was promoting 99 Bottles of Oop, which is that she and Sandy were talking about Martin Fowler's refactoring book and Katrina kept on insisting that particular techniques and processes and et cetera were things that were in the refactoring book because she had learned from it and they were things they did and they were things that she did. However, they weren't actually directly in the refactoring book at all. They were things that Katrina had kind of folk wisdom added to processes that she had originally derived from that book and that she just kept on iterating on and iterating on in ways where she ascribed them to Fowler, but they were actually entirely her own original work by that point. I think about that a lot when I think about how we think about TDD and what what it gives us. A lot of us testing 
is something where we've learned a lot of lessons about design from it. And so we axiomatically think that those design lessons have to have come from testing. But I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I think that some of that might be attribution bias. I think that's great. I'm inclined to agree with uh, everything Betsy just said. One of the things I've sort of found in my own practice is that like I can sort of do what you might describe as the like academic TDD, right? And then that leads to sort of some of the same things that Katrina shows falling out in the book where you have everything dependency injected and all the objects are really tiny and like that almost functions like they're not really even doing what we might think as as oopy stuff they they end up more looking like pure functions but on a mostly daily software engineering basis i don't do that and the reason i found is that a lot of people will cargo cult what i'm doing but not actually do the thing as prescribed and no you and i have gone back and forth on this a little bit about there are a whole set of practices that are almost tdd but aren't tdd and that those leave you in a much worse state than if you had just written code on your own without any like support from tests whatsoever and i have found that without very very careful guidance everyone falls somewhere into that space yeah, to elaborate on that. Yeah, there's there, there's a lot of things that I see in people's code or in code that I wind up doing where you have either like a very long test or a very long series of end-to-end tests that is written sort of around the code. And while it's sort of TDD, it doesn't have the like baby step, small test, small piece of code piece that I have always found to be like the most valuable part of the, the TDD process. Instead, it's a large test and a large chunk of code to make it pass. And that can give you a setup where you have tests uh, and you have the burden of maintaining test suite, but you, the test suite's not giving you confidence in making changes. So in some sense, you're, bur- you're carrying more code, but you're not gaining any confidence about whether you can make a change uh, safely. So that's one of the things that I, that I see. And the prevalence of, of people falling into that kind of process is the sort of thing that makes me think, and then, yeah, uh, this is another thing that we were kind of going back and forth on, was if I try to teach one person TDD and I fail, that could be on them. If I try to teach a room full of people TDD and they all fail, that's possibly on me. If we all try to teach roomfuls of t- people TDD and we all fail, that might be on the idea. It might just not fit with what we're trying to do with it, or it might, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. And I don't really think I have a great answer to that. Abdi, what are you thinking? Well, um, one thing I've noticed is that we've kind of been using the word testing and and then the, the term TDD interchangeably. Right. So I think, you know, this is a thing that has happened in the past maybe 10 years as a result of, you know, the growth and popularity of, I guess, Basically, the the ubiquity of like the extreme programming practice, um, which, you know, test-driven development was a core part of that. And when we talk about testing, a lot of times what we're really talking about is automated developer testing. And then TDD, I would say, is even a subset of automated developer testing where, you know, you write the tests before you actually write the code that you're, that you're going to be testing. And that matters to me because, you know, I'm not just trying to like get into semantics, but like... So the other day I was, I was facilitating a group doing a mob programming session 
And we kind of figured out what we wanted to implement. And so they dove into the next step to implement that code. And, and I was like, wait on, wait a second, hang on. There's nothing broken right now. And that's a problem. Like there is nothing, I don't, there is nothing that is clearly breaking that and that will change as we write this code. And the answer to that turned out, I, I, well, at various points in the development process, the answer to that turned out to be a particular command line, a uh, rake command line invocation that was failing and that as we wrote more code failed differently and finally stopped failing um, as we, you know, pressed up arrow and enter over and over again. And um, in another case, it was a page on their site that we hit the reload button on and it slowly showed more and more stuff and then eventually was doing the thing that we wanted it to do. And that is testing. Fooling around at a REPL is also testing. And it's not automated testing, but it is testing. And, you know, to me, a big part of why TDD was important was just instilling the testing mindset. And that to me is the testing mindset is just the idea that, that we don't go too long without some kind of feedback from the code, some way uh, for the code to talk to us and say, here's what I'm doing now. And that can be a lot of different things. You know, it can be a repeated command. It can be, can be better logging but something to give us quick feedback. And it's not always TDD. It's not always writing automated developer unit tests beforehand. Right. And on the other side of that, there are all sorts of things we call testing that are not really developer testing, that are regression testing or the kind of things a QA. I, I'm, I continually, we have, we have a fanta- I work with a fantastic QA engineer, and he is continually pushing me to write more tests. Because I've written tests that make me comfortable from a developer perspective, but he sees holes from a QA perspective. And he's almost always right. They're more expensive tests than I would consider writing from a strictly TDD perspective. But from his perspective, they're almost always something that covers a, a case that's not covered. To me, the, the, that confusion of what is a test and, and what is an automated test and what is TDD is certainly confusion that I see in conversations about this. And what's interesting to me about that is that on the same token, when I'm teaching TDD to newer developers, the thing that I always have to cozy them into is, yes, it is okay to throw tests away. It is okay to write a test that gives you the immediate feedback on something you want to get to the next step. But that test can have been useful for that moment and not be useful for literally any moment after. And just because you've written a test doesn't mean you need to keep it. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, so in my teaching, I've never been able to convince anyone of, and I'd be interested to hear from the rest of you, is that like it's totally okay to delete tests. And sometimes tests have negative value. Like you can have a unit test or an integration test that is actually like hurting you way more than it's helping you and you can delete it. But I find that most teams and particularly rails teams don't have anywhere near the degree of confidence in their applications to be able to throw any of that away because they don't know what doesn't doesn't have value i think a lot of it is that you can't have that idea of what has and doesn't have value until you have good instincts around coupling um and what kinds of coupling are useful or acceptable and what kinds of coupling are just going to hurt you in the long run yeah yeah and i think that gets to the higher order point of where the object oriented and the test driven stuff sort of intersect which is how and whether we teach design and that sort of design instinct and whether there's any way to teach it 
other than you know writing a lot of programs and seeing how they fail over time. Another thing that I see people push back on in teaching TDD is the concept of writing uh, what uh, Gary Bernhardt calls sliming the test, putting just the constant value in to make the immediate test passed, even though it's obviously not the final value. Like I have been in cases where I have been teaching TDD and I say like, yeah, and and we'll just make this test pass by having the the method return three or whatever. And people just start laughing. Like they are like very resistant to the idea that you would put that temporary code in, even if nobody would see it. There, there's a certain sense, I think, especially among entry-level developers, that if it's not perfectly polished, like all the way through, they don't want to even type it. For me, that gets to another thing that, happens all the time with entry level and sometimes even like late entry level and early mid developers, which is they have a profound discomfort with methods that just return a constant value no matter what. And in my opinion, if you're decomposing code properly and using polymorphism appropriately, you're going to wind up in a case where you have a method that just returns a static value so that you can maintain an interface, especially if you're writing Ruby. I mean, I send people to of these uh, prefer methods instead of constants talk all the time because i like to do it that way so i think that at some point some of it is that they have this definition of a program in their head and a program executes an algorithm that means you need to write an algorithm which is something that is much more complicated than just returning a static value i agree with all of that so another thing that that sandy asked me which i actually surprisingly did not have a great answer for was how and why did I learn TDD? And I guess I would throw that question out to you. How did you learn TDD? Uh, why did you learn it? And like, was it immediately apparent to you that it was a valuable technique? So I think I learned TDD for a way that is actually, according to my friend Natalie, incredibly traditional, which was I had an anxiety disorder. The computer freaked me out and it gave me a way of being less freaked out by the computer. Like, there's something about the routine of getting past feedback that is mentally useful for me. I think that that's true of a lot of people. I think that that is a legitimate purpose for certain forms of test-driven development. And I think the tension lies in the fact that since it's not okay for us to talk about that as a legitimate purpose, we make up all kinds of technical reasons why it has to be better to justify something that is better for us in terms of our work process. Did you find it hard when you first learned it? Did you find it valuable when you first learned it? I found it complicated when I first learned it, in large part because I was implementing it as a very competent mid-level developer who had gotten senior put into her title for reasons that surpass this understanding. The reasons were that... I was the only developer on the project and they needed a way to keep me. And <laughs> dealing with like this horrible legacy code base and trying to get any kind of control over it whatsoever. And so I had an extremely unpleasant experience as one always does when trying to impose testing on a code base that has grown up absent the influence of any kind of testing whatsoever. But it was still useful for me, even though it was extremely slow first. Abdi, how did you learn TDD? I was just thinking about that. I think um, a lot of the stuff that I learned early on was from kind of browsing the wiki wiki, the Ward Cunningham's original Ward Cunningham's, wiki, yeah. where you know he and a bunch of other software people were kind of discussing new ways of doing software. 
And I think I learned it from there or the, the concept from there. And I, at the time I was working at a, a really, really big stodgy company where that kind of thing was just completely off the radar. And I was tasked at one point with implementing a networking protocol from scratch. Um, it was a known protocol. <laughs> it was a well document, or, you know, it, it was a protocol with a spec, but I needed to implement our own processor for it in C++, which is all, what all the work was being done in. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try this TDD thing. So this is a little bit, un- a little bit different from like the traditional TDD process because it wasn't like discovering the problem as well as the solution. It was really just discovering the solution. Um, the problem was very well laid down in this in this example. So that was probably in some ways a nice way to learn. Um, but I was off in a corner, you know, it was just my project. Nobody else was working with me. And I was and I had the spec and I found a, a, a simple like unit test library for C++ that someone had made. And I just went through the spec, you know, adding a test and making it pass, adding a test, making it pass until I'd gone through the whole spec. And I was like, OK, I think I've covered every case that this spec talks about. And we plugged it into the big, the main system, you know, the rest of the system, like integrated with the rest of the system it was supposed to be integrated with. And it basically worked the first time, which was unheard of in that environment. And there was like one memory leak or something, which is not something that TDD will, will uh, get, get you away from. And yeah, like and at that point, I was like, okay, I'm sold. It was, it was a nice, it was a very comfortable incremental process. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of like, long periods of time where I wasn't sure if it was going to work or not. It was very, you know, very much write a test, make it pass, write a test, make it pass all the way up to the end. And then it worked. So I guess that was my first experience with it. Yeah, that was, I think, kind of similar to my first experience in that I was working more or less on my own and had, I think, a kind of a similar experience of something working very close to the first try because I had done the TDD process. Penelope, how did you learn it? That's a good question. I think it sort of happened like in two chunks with like a large gap between them. So when I was a nascent college student, I think that's when a bunch of the like Ruby community TDD stuff was coming online. And there were a bunch of conference talks, some I think by folks on this call uh, that I was starting to watch to like try and get a handle on it. And then like simultaneously while doing that, I started contributing to the RSpec project. And most of RSpec is not written in a TDD fashion because it's a <laughs> large, gnarly legacy code base. And you couldn't, right? You just couldn't. Um, and then when I graduated college, the company that I joined was like, we're going to do front to back TDD on every single piece of code we build. And like, it was a Ruby application, but it wasn't Rails. It was like, an architecture that they'd sort of grown from scratch. At one point, the lead of engineering for this company was like, I'm trying to force myself to write a test that requires me to implement, like, change the backend from being in memory to Redis. And I was like, well, the only way to do that is to kill and restart the process. But like, if you really want a test that does that, you know, I mean, and so it was like a very, very extreme, like, we are going to do all TDD all the time environment. And we were also doing all pairing all the time. And so I learned it from people who had been doing it for much, much longer. In terms of whether I think it was useful, I was actually very resistant to it being useful or faster than taking larger steps and throwing more tests away. I think one of the things we did very wrong in that environment is not throwing enough tests away. And when you do that like very pure step at a time TDD, you end up with a bunch of tests that basically completely couple 
your architecture together. And then we had to do a big refactoring. And suddenly, like, all the tests were read. And it was like, do we fix these one at a time? Do we, like, refactor by, like, breaking and fixing? What Like, how do we do this? And I, now I would have been like, let's just blow away all the unit tests. And as long as these integration tests pass, like, start again. Right? So, yeah, that's that's my summary. So one of the things that I think comes out of this was another thought that I had about TDD and testing in general, well, is that TDD is not a robust process mm-hmm. in the sense that a system that has not been written using TDD is very hard to bring under TDD. And even a system that starts using TDD, once you start sort of sliding away from it, it becomes very hard to recover. And I wonder if that makes sense to <laughs> the assembled panel. And if you think that that's part of why TDD is so hard to transmit to other teams or so often just not useful in practice. Or maybe it's just not useful in practice at that scale, at, at scale. Well, one of the things I've seen is that like, if you're doing it right, you're doing dependency injection literally everywhere. And like, this is something Sandy brought up repeatedly in the episode that she was in. Mm-hmm. Um, What's weird about that is I almost never do dependency injection. So I kind of push back against that. Um, same. But, but so I, think- I think part of it is that I agree that generally it means doing dependency injection literally everywhere. I think that it doesn't necessarily mean that. But I so- think that even when it doesn't, the ways that doesn't like tend to involve like either really useful strategies for managing stubs or ways of setting up your code base so that you don't need to rely on stubbing to unit tests. And both of those are not transmittable via copy and paste. Right. Well, actually, you kind of made my next point for me. I was winding up to that, which is that it led to a propagation of tools that let you like blow holes in your isolation boundaries uh, in order to like make testing easier. Right. And like, I will put my hand up and say, RSpec mocks is like, the isolation boundary destroyer, right? Like, it's basically what it's designed for in principle. And that's difficult because I have a whole talk on this, but, like, when you do that, like, you're learning the wrong thing from the tool. The tool is pointing you in the wrong direction. It's a power user's tool, but people go, oh, this is advanced stuff, therefore I must use it to be advanced, and they completely shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, well, one of the things I've always sort of found, right, is that it it makes all the all the sort of forms of this equivalently easy. So like, passing a stub in is made as easy as replacing the implementation of a method, which is made as easy as stubbing out an entire class, which is made as easy as using the any instant, right? Like, like those those four things are equivalently easy with RSpec. So the tool provides you no feedback at all about the idea that you've, you're sort of like going down a path which may indicate you have a worse design. And um, like I've spent years being like, please don't do this. I know you can do this. I know it seems like this is what you should be doing, but if we do it this way, then our system will be easier to work with. So what's the this way in that our system will be easier to work with? <sighs> I guess like anytime I see in any instance or a class stub, I'm immediately like, we have a serious design issue here that we probably need to address and unless, like unless we're in a legacy code base and we're like just trying to shore up some safeties around something if this is a fresh code i will be like please can we find a different way to do this 
I will confess to have used a class tub in a Greenfield code base earlier today without any regrets. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask, is that a Rails code base? Yes. Yeah. But it's actually not the Rails bits. GitHub's GraphQL library is weird. <laughs> I actually think it's a significant issue here that none of the frameworks that we sort of regularly use on the Ruby side are like built to do TDD. Like Rails is built yeah. to do testing in a very mm -hmm. smooth and profound and very valuable way. And it was certainly one of the things that drew me to it initially. But it is not really built to do unit testing. Um, you can't really test models without bringing in the entire database. It's nearly impossible to test associations without bringing in the entire database still at this point. And I think that that also... And Justin's not here, but Justin would say, <laughs> because of Rails, the need to do testing to discover your domain is less because Rails provides such strong pressure on the domain. I think that's what Justin mm. would say. He'd say a lot of things, probably. That's that's one of them. <laughs> um, I have a salty and controversial opinion for a minute. No, we don't want to have any salty controversial <laughs> opinions. Why, why would we want that? We didn't invite Justin, so salt's not allowed on yeah, this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I did invite Justin. He is like... 400 hours off of our time zone. The conventional line on Rails unit tests is that they're impossible to truly do because you have to pull in the database and blah, blah, blah. Yes. But for me, I would argue that the database is just part of the unit in a Rails model test if you're writing Rails correctly, and so you should just suck it up and deal. I mean, that's basically what I do in practice, right? I think that Rails, yes, within the Rails universe, the database is part of your active record model. I think that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Cause like just from a completely different domain, I was once in a like distributed systems architecture meeting where they were like, cool. So you have your Rails app and you have your database and these are logically separate components in our distributed system. And I was like, no, there's no way for us to keep that Rails app online if the database isn't there. And they were like, have it return a health check that doesn't require the data. I was like, the controller will raise an exception regardless of what I put in it if the database isn't there. Like, no, it's just, it's the, these are one box, right? And so like, like I'm just sort of inclined to agree with Betsy there that like, yeah, like that makes a lot of sense. That's why I've been spending all that time recently on like figuring out ways to make in-memory data happen in active record tests because mm. I think that we're not going to be able to convince people to stop doing horrible things with stubs to mock out their database in active record tests unless we can make that a faster process. And I don't actually think that the problem is with the Rails architecture here. I think it's with us needing test speed and doing horrible things. I do think it's weird and have long thought it is weird that nobody has come along and built like an in-memory active record clone for the purpose of testing. Uh, that lets you in-memory manage associations as though they were in a database. And I don't think it's a library I've ever seen or and have never actually been bothered to write, but I, it's always been surprised to me that somebody has not gone out and, and done it. It's because it's a viciously hard problem that involves writing a database from scratch. That was I had been working on it all summer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hence that I've never been bothered to write it myself. <laughs> So I guess like there are a lot of questions here. Like in practice, is TDD really dead? Like, is it worth practicing? Is it worth teaching to Rails developers? Is there a valuable piece of technique or a valuable thought process there? Uh, you know, at this point, uh, you know, I think the elephant in the room is that 
TDD, especially once we start talking about like mocks and stubs and things like that as well, once that enters the conversation, TDD is a, a an exercise. It's a it's a way of designing APIs, or it very often is in the larger sense, it. not just in like the server sense. Yeah, like you know, it's it's determining what what your your code surface is going to be to your code to other people's code. You know, it's it's determining what that's what that interface is going to look like, and it's an exercise. And it's a really interesting exercise in experimenting with okay, how what does the usage look like when I design my API this way? When I design my methods this way? When I when I break the problem down into this set of classes versus that set of classes? The tests say a lot about that you have to write for that. Say a lot about how that API is, how that interface is to use. You know, what a lot of people, what a lot of TDD advocates will say and unit testing advocates in general will say is that the point of it all is that your tests are the first consumer of your API. They are the original consumer and that, and they give you kind of a, a sense of what it looks like to consume that API. And API could just mean, you know, the three methods that are on the class that you're writing right now. You know, we're not talking about like large scale APIs here, but they, they are a very, they give you a fingerprint of what it looks like to use the code that you're writing. And so, you know, when I hear that Dave Thomas throw all his tests away, and he and I have talked about this too, you know, when I hear that he's, he throw all his tests away or unit tests or whatever, and still like doesn't see a major difference. Well, I also happen to know that Dave Thomas has an internalized an enormous amount of good taste about interface design over the years, you know, and so that doesn't surprise me at all because Dave Thomas he can see in his head what it's going to be like to use the interface that he's creating. And, you know, likewise with, with mocks and stubs originally that was really supposed to be about, let's see what it's going to look like to use, you know, what is the API that we are going to need, even though we don't have that class yet. This is a drum I've been banging for years and years. Then I've realized that it's, it's kind of a lost cause at this point that we were never supposed to use. Well, okay. A few years after the creators of, of, of mock objects invented them, they looked at their experiences and wrote up a paper that said, okay, what we have found is that they're great for simulating objects that don't exist yet that we need to write because we find out what API those objects are going to need. And they are terrible for isolating the system from already existing other code. You know, they're, they're not so great for like pretending that the database doesn't exist and stuff like that. Um, or pretending that your, you know, external API that you're supposed to talk to doesn't exist. They're not great for test performance hacks. But that's basically the only thing that people use them for anymore. So, think, yeah. Something you said there that I, I'd like I'd like to go back in on, and it, it was right at the beginning, where you, you sort of conceptualize that when someone is exercising, like going through the TDD exercises, they're sort of like testing out multiple versions of how they might approach the same problem, or like, editing the interfaces on their objects and that sort of thing. And I think one of the things I've seen is that for even up to sort of like very experienced mid-level developers, they will just like do the TDD, like churn through the TDD process and then stop mm-hmm. and, ne- and never actually do that sort of re-architecture exactly. redesigning. And even they'll do the refactor step because they've been told to, but it'll be like, I'm going to like make this method smaller and make a private method or something like that. And never like, Refactor as in move the whole system around. And I think one of the, and this is a question to the panel, is like, do we think that we've done a 
bad job of explaining what the refactor step is for. Because I think I think the like write a failing test and the make the test pass steps are fairly self-explanatory, and the refactor step is not. Please. I think there's a missing step because when we talk about the refactor step, what we're very explicitly talking about there, according to the you know the definition of refactoring, is we take our tests exactly as with, as they are, and we uh, muck around with the internals to make them prettier. And that's a really important step because you can write some really ugly code that makes the tests pass. But there's another step which we don't talk about which is looking at the tests and saying, okay, well, the, all this works now and I re refactored the internals, but this test is telling me that this interface is a pain to use. And at that point, you can't just refactor in the traditional sense. You have to throw the tests away and the code yeah. under test. Yeah. And you have to write new tests that are like, okay, this is the way I'd really like to use it. This is how I'd like it to work. And now let's make that work. See, that sounds hard. Is the <laughs> so like being real about why we skip that though we skip that because for two reasons one of them is that we're typically not inviting earlier career developers to incorporate slack into their process explicitly um we're doing the reverse we're judging them on how fast they can have the output of a quote-unquote real developer because we don't really value them yet we just view them as bodies and so they feel pressure to keep up by not actually teaching themselves properly and the other reason is that we train them tdd as a dogmatic process and that's the thing i think that actually needs to go not tdd itself but dogmatism around versions of tdd because dogmatism about versions of tdd discourages people from taking the time to reflect on their own code because they're not in a reflective state of mind. They're in a, I will execute this mechanistic process state of mind. I completely agree. It's, it's interesting, actually. Like, I think Noel originally framed the question 10 minutes ago as like, are we still practicing TDD? Like, and like, I found myself ma making these much larger steps usually and just being like, I could write the like five tests that would imply this test, or I could just write this test because I know I already like this interface because it's showing me the whole thing in one go. And I think that like if you're newer, you can't do that, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're looking for and you're looking for anything that lets you sort of like not feel scared that something's gone horribly. As Betsy, you were saying earlier, something's gone horribly wrong all the time. And I think like we kind of we kind of hand them TDD and go, here you go, do this, but like. There's no room to be like, and this thing is not perfect, and here's all the damage it's done to all of the billions of dollars worth of code bases, and that you should find a way to make this work for you. One thing that struck me when I first started learning TDD, and, and it's always been a reason why I do it, is that TDD reduces my short-term cognitive load. It reduces the number of things I need to think about at one time by focusing my efforts on making the current test pass. And especially when I was first learning it, I found that very, very valuable. And I think over time, kind of as you were implying, that's less valuable as I've gotten better and better at keeping large chunks of code in my head at a time. And I've always kind of assumed uh, that DHH, who that a lot of Rails designs decisions make a lot of sense if you think of DHH as somebody who is like extremely good at keeping very large amounts of code in his head. Uh, a lot of the concerns about like 
the surface area of active record objects and then not having TDD, like all of that is consistent with a design philosophy where you're comfortable keeping a lot of stuff in your head. Does that make sense? Like, does that imply anything about how we teach this or should teach this? Yes. And I do think that optimizing for a team, because team is always the, even if it's a one person team, a team is always the appropriate unit for understanding a code base. Optimizing for a team that can keep a lot of code in their head at once is a reasonable choice for an organization to make. It's going to be a limiting choice in most cases because it means that you have to have a hiring strategy of a small number of experienced people who stay on the project for literally years. And that's not something the average organization is going to find sustainable, but it's a viable strategy. Yeah, Betsy, what you were saying reminds me of the, that uh, Jessica Kerr has a thing that she says about 10x developers, which is that the 10x developer is not somebody who's who's better at coding or smarter. Um, the, the, the person that seems like the 10x developer on a project is the one that's been there since the project was incepted and just has a mental model of the whole thing in their head. That's not an inherent property. It's a, it's a property of context. Oh, yeah. And I've worked on the team I just described. I was the new girl on that team and I had a very poor experience, but it was in many ways a perfectly high functioning team for everyone else on it. Yeah. So I have not spent most of my career on long lived teams. I've spent a lot of my career in, in small and short consulting projects where I have like sort of where the teams turn over a lot. Um, and I think that might affect the way that I approach the testing and design of code because I've never been in a situation where I've had the expectation that there is going to be anybody who has a complete mental model of the system like that. I was reflecting on my experiences where I I joined this company that had been, you know, TDDing everything from scratch from day one. And in the sense that like everyone on that team had like enough experience that like they could be trusted to write code independently without any help whatsoever. I think it actually sort of caused like a convergence of like people who had been around for a long time and people who were new were delivering at like not wildly varying rates, but that the reason that was true is that I think the actual average of new features being delivered was a lot lower than nearly every other team I've ever worked on. But that, like, they were incredibly precise because of all of the tests we were writing. Like, we had three to one, four to one test to code ratio easily. So another thing that I sometimes think about here is, you know, sometimes we talk about metrics or empirical studies of code. And and there's actually been empirical studies of TDD and testing and, and, and all this stuff. And they tend to be terrible in terms of the studies of the design of the studies. And they haven't shown a really strong effect. What would convince you that TDD was a bad idea and maybe had always been a bad idea, if anything? Like, what would convince you to stop doing even the amounts of it that you are doing now? Oh, I'm already there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's one person who has fallen off the train. (laughs) Okay. So what convinced you? I stopped doing it and I didn't feel like... Firstly, I didn't feel like my code was substantially worse or better or like less reliable or more reliable. But 
because I have been an authority figure in software testing for essentially my entire career because I've been an aspect maintainer uh, since I graduated college, people stopped cargo culting the tests I was like the like very precise small tests and then doing it in a way where like it wasn't actually TBD and ending up with tests that were worse than having larger ones or the ones they did implement if they were doing it post hoc. So I am also in the, I'm not currently actually doing a lot of TDD train. That's because the project I'm on right now is a really spiky, exploratory, weird project. So that's kind of a special case. And I do think that some of the code that I've produced in the context of this project has been code that would have been coded differently if I'd used CDD methods. And I do think that some of it is in some ways worse than the code I would have been writing if I'd been test driving. It's a spike though, so. Can, can I ask a question? Yeah. Do you think it would be easy for you to get it to a state where it was not like sort of value judgment worse and or that you could retrofit tests on it to improve the design? Yes, but I specifically held myself back from a decision to make that easier earlier this morning. It was the near thing. I like overfitted to something and then I went, no, bad Betsy slapped self on hand. <laughs> yeah. So the reason, the reason I ask that is I think that people who have done it a lot know where to avoid those landmines is all. Yeah. No, I think that that's reasonable. One thing I do think kind of riffing off of your question, Noel, the evidence that caused me to have a much more complicated position on TDD than I used to earlier in my career was seeing the tests in a lot of modern JavaScript projects <laughs> and seeing the test frameworks in a lot of modern JavaScript projects. Because until that point, I'd largely been working in a Rails context where everyone is kind of agreed to cross their fingers and say good enough in terms of test isolation, because that's all you can really do. But the culture in React particularly, but increasingly also of you, is to go for hyper-isolation of small pieces. And a lot of the tests that are produced that way feel like virtually useless reifications of something that you were going to do Anyway, one of the reasons I'm so hardline about the databases part of the unit in a Rails test now is because I've seen what happens to front-end tests that don't treat the browser as part of the unit, and I really don't like it. Yeah, I have a whole separate rant about the DOM and, and, and third-party <laughs> dependency. I think, we all, I think we all have a rant about this. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have trouble with, with productivity measures um, and things like that. Quality measures can be better, not always. And, you know, earlier I was talking about how, how I think TDD unit tests, all this stuff are their exercises in interface design. And, you know, really what that is, is it's an instance of sense making, which mm-hmm. most, most of the software, of the software project is sense making. And I have a hard, I, I don't know that we have any kind of quantitative measure of sense making or whether such a thing even makes sense. Yeah. Um, like, you know, how well are we doing at sense making on this project? Uh, I don't think that we're going to assign a number to that anytime soon. And so like when, when I think about the question of, you know, okay, what, what stats, you know, would convince me to throw away TDD or 
unit testing or whatever. Well, I don't think they exist because I don't think that that there's a measure of the sense making portion. No, but there might be a subjective feeling you have on project after project. Where you but I say like, that as somebody yeah. who who is kind of you know moving fluidly uh, yeah. between between mm-hmm. stuff where I where I test very you know do very TDD style design and where I just sort of be like okay yeah this clearly doesn't need a test whatever um, and that's you know that's voice of experience to some degree. Yeah, I think if I was to ask myself the inverse question, what stats, metrics, etc. would get you back on the TDD train, I think it would be seeing outcomes in code bases worked on by non-experts improve. Because like the outcomes I've seen in every Rails app where they've tried to do TDD and like the most senior person learn TDD by word of mouth and isn't really in a position to be great at teaching it all the way down, which is nearly every Rails company on the planet. To me, it's it like it's just so obviously worse than if they had just done larger tests retrospectively and like almost effectively like mini integration tests that are integrating two or three components of the application and the database to try something out. Right. And so like if you could plausibly change that effect, which like, I think is one we've all seen, that's what would do it for me. Okay. For me, it uh, comes back to the sense-making point Opti was making. I use TDD as a tool for sense-making. I am not convinced that everyone else does. And I think that TDD not used for sense-making has had some really corrosive effects. Yeah, I, I think I would say that, that it seems to me that a lot of people test without a theory of why they're testing. And I think what we're getting at is that there are like a, a number of different theories about why to test that might be effective, but where you really get in trouble is if you just throw tests at the problem without any real sense of why you're, why you're writing this test or, or, or what your options are, you know, what, what options you're choosing out of. And I think some of that is, it could be faulted back to the rhetoric by which, uh, TDD was introduced, right? Like, you must do this. This is how you produce quality software. Software not done with this is bad software, right? Which is slight hyperbole, but I don't feel like it's it's a complete mischaracterization of some of the ways people have presented it. What do I tell these people that are coming to my workshop next week? I mean, for my money, I, I think it's still very valuable to teach people this skill. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of skills that are valuable in software, you know, ranging from big O notation, you know, estimating performance of algorithms to things like TDD. Um, you don't use any of them all the time, um, but we've found this one to be often useful as a, as a intellectual exercise or, you know, as, as a design exercise. And it's certainly a lot more immediate than a lot of the design exercises that came before it. So there are days when... I just draw a frickin' blank about how to move forwards on the thing that I need to write. And on those days, TDD has often gotten me out of that rut because it gave me a way to make very small steps and not think about the big picture. And if even only for that reason, I think it's a useful tool for people to for for new programmers to learn because it's gonna give them a tool in their toolbox to get them out of that rut. And we all need need that sometimes. Okay. I like that. We can leave it there. Where can people find you online if they want to uh, rant at you about testing some more? I'm Betsy. You can find me on the internet at Betsy the Muffin. 
on Twitter, or you can find my company's Twitter at WeCohere. Uh, I'm Avdi. Uh, you can find me online at avdi.codes, and I'm on Twitter as Avdi, A-V-D-I. You can find me on Twitter at Penelope Zone, or you can check out my blog at Penelope.Zone. Great. Thank you for being on this episode. Uh, I really appreciate it, and it's great to talk to you, and, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tech Done Right is available on the web at techdoneright.io, where you can learn more about our guests and comment on our episodes. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you like the show, tell a friend or your social media network. And leaving a review on Apple Podcasts helps people find the show. Tech Done Right is hosted by me, Noel Rapp, and our editor is Mandy Moore. You can find us on Twitter at Noel Rapp and at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right is produced by TableXI. TableXI is a custom design and software company in Chicago. We've been named one of Inc. Magazine's best workplaces, and we're a top-rated custom software development company on Clutch.co. You can learn more about working with us or working for us at TableXI.com or follow us on Twitter at TableXI. And now, an update on the show. I don't know exactly when this episode will be released, but this will probably be my final episode of Tech Done Right. Whether or not it continues in the future, I don't know. If it does, I certainly wish it well and hope that uh, it continues to produce great shows. I've really enjoyed doing this for the past 72 episodes. It's been a thrill and an opportunity to have some great conversations with some wonderful people in and around the technology space. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And thank you to all the people who have listened and left feedback or told me that they liked an episode. Uh, it's really been great. And I really appreciate all of the time that people have put into listening and I hope that you have enjoyed the show too. So thank you 